Hey guys, Brian Jodas checking in. Today's episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by our friends at Onnit. And today we're talking about new mood. Everything that goes up must come down, right? Ourselves included. Think about it. During the day, we amp up with things like caffeine. Maybe you've got a pre-workout and more, all in the name of meeting the challenges in front of us. Well, Onnit's new mood is the AMP antidote, helping you relax and focus on yourself by turning down the noise of the chaos. Designed to give you calm, the carefully sourced ingredients support your body's natural serotonin production and help erase daily stress. I love it. So go to onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com and use the code PICK6, P-I-C-K-S-I-X to save 10% today. Head over to onnit.com and save today. Let's get on it. You don't wander into an Air Force recruiter's office and suddenly find yourself out at Firebase Cobra. You have to want it, and you have to work extremely hard to get there. Mark Forrester sought the path he was on, and it was truly the path less traveled. Those are the comments a commanding officer said about Mark Forrester, who was killed in combat in Afghanistan in 2010. Today we meet Mark through his brother Thad and a book he wrote called My Brother in Arms on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Thad Forster, welcome to Pick Up the Six Podcast. Brian, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Uh, I love this, this world that we live in where shared friends can make connections and bring conversations like this uh, to uh, to the surface. You know, a friend of mine through the F3 community said, hey, man, love what you're doing. Pick up a six podcast. I said, thank you, brother. He said, I got a guy you need to talk to, Thad Forster. You need to have him on. You need to share the story of his hero brother, Mark, who uh, was killed in action in 2010. So we're going to get all into all that. We're going to share your story, and we're going to get to know your hero a little bit. But first and foremost, just the thanks to our shared friend for making that connection and bringing us together to have this important conversation today and and uh, not by coincidence right uh, coincidence is god taking action and choosing to remain anonymous about that interaction in our life and i think that's what brings us to where we are today so first of all man just thanks for for coming on and and sharing this story a little bit yeah i guess it's been several several years since i've seen jordan aka gus and um, so anyway glad to know I'm talking to, I've met Hello Kitty now as well. So <laughs> good to be here. That's right. I told you, uh, and you know, for our pick up the six listeners, some of them know the backstory that I said, uh, I said that that'll be a story for when we can get together in person. And I'll share that one with you, how that all came to be, but thanks to Jordan as well. And, and all that. All right, let's get to know the Forrester family a little bit. And we're going to talk about uh, your brother and uh, his incredible call to service. And we're going to hear his story, uh, but introduce us to the Forrester family and, and this uh, this rather large crew that you guys have. Yeah, I don't know that it's anything that's that's super unique. I mean, there are five kids. We range, there's 15 years between Mark, who's the youngest, and my sister, who's the oldest. Uh, so I like to say I got a great mix of some awesome music from late 70s to, you know, through the 80s, that the 80s rock and roll, and then, you know, on into the late 90s with Mark. Um, but yeah, we, we grew up in a small town, Northwest Alabama and uh, a lot of land and, and four boys, one girl. So we spent a lot of time outside, at, especially in the summertime. I didn't wear shoes a whole lot. I mm -hmm. usually wore flip flops to ride my bike and then, you know, we wore shoes when we had to, but just, it was a really, it was really a great 
childhood. And I, and I talk about that in the book too. It was sun up to sun down, just about outside, you know, or swimming or doing something like that. And, and now I've got boys that, that love to do the same. Unfortunately, they don't have the, the land and space mm-hmm. that we had, but they do love being outside. That there's a, a way you can, uh, you can give some context around how you grew up and how old you are and what life was like. You say, were you a drinking from the hose kind of kid? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it had to be. I had older brothers and that's the way it was. That was it, man. You were outside playing sun up to sundown. If you got thirsty, take a pull off the hose. You just move oh, on to the Or next I thought that the stream behind our house, if it was running over rocks, I thought the water was clean. So we drank it. And just looking back, handful. that's disgusting. <laughs> I got to think older sister becomes an extension of the parental units at some point with four boys growing up. And and uh, so what was her role like in that in that dynamic with probably four rough and tumble boys. Uh, I get the feeling that she could kind of get in there and mix it up a little bit if she had to. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. She's tough. And um, she was a majorette. So for those that don't know what those are, they, they twirl the batons. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and she had some really pretty friends and they would come over and do their, their practicing. And so we always loved that too. Yep. But yeah, she was tough, but she, she took care of us, especially me and Mark as being the two youngest. She was 11 years older than me. And, so she was like another mom for sure. Mm-hmm. You could uh, tell at an early age that Mark was destined uh, for greatness, for, for leadership. Uh, and in the book, you talk about a lot. Uh, the book that you wrote is called My Brother in Arms. And we're going to talk about why you felt so called to write that uh, after he paid that ultimate price. But take me into some of those moments and some of the things you talk about in here about him at a young age and, and seeing some of that develop in him. Well, I think Mark was loyal to his friends and to his dog. <laughs> and in turn, that you know, they were loyal to him. Um, Mark was athletic. He was really, you know, as a young as a youngster, he was he was really fast. I remember that. Uh, just a good athlete. Uh, when he got a little older, he Mark hit puberty much later than most everyone else. And so he was when he was 16, he looked like he was 13 or 12. And, you know, it, it, when he had a job, he had a summer job in high school. And I remember he said people used to say to him when he would make deliveries, they would question his age. They didn't think he was old enough to drive. Uh, so I think they, they picked on him, picked at him a lot at work, uh, just teasing him, though, all in mm-hmm. good fun. But um, I was pretty protective of him. I was gone for a few years on a mission, so I wasn't there for some of those years. But he, when he was in ninth or 10th grade, he did not make the basketball team for the high school. And uh, that was pretty devastating to him. I think a lot of it, I don't think it had anything to do with his skill. I think it was his size, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that really bothered him. Um, but he did stick with tennis. He played tennis through high school and, and played very well. And uh, he just, he, he was a driven young man. And um, I, he didn't, I don't think he planned on the military at all until once 9-11 happened, though. You talked about there not being, you know, a major military influence. And we've heard this in other stories before where, you know, sometimes that isn't necessarily the case. It's not everybody grows up with this long military lineage and ends up serving the nation. 9-11 happens and, and a lot of things change. What changed in him then? In, in him then? Well, uh, he just felt a calling. I mean, Mark at the time. So first of all, I'll back up. I mean, he, 
he was already living a life of service. He had chose to serve a mission. He was a missionary full-time for our church. He was in Oakland, California. Uh, so that was when he was 19 to 21. So mm-hmm. September of 2001, I think he had just turned 20. And um, he was angry. And so he felt that calling inside that he needed to do something. Now he, he wanted to finish his mission, which he did. So he finished his full-time service serving other people. And then he, you know, he had planned on going to college. And so he did that, even though during college, there were times he wanted to, to stop, to quit and go ahead and join. He was really just felt an urgency to, to get in and do something and, and um, help eliminate terrorists. Yeah. It's really what he felt like God wanted him to do. But he, yeah. he kind of, he had promised mom he would get his, his degree and he did. So he sees those things through, you know, shows this, you know, servant heart in finishing out that mission work, promises mom, I'm going to go get the degree, does that. But then life leads him into the Air Force and not just the Air Force, but the special forces and the combat controller. How does all that play out for him? Well, he was, he started looking at, he wanted something very difficult. And and once again, he had a degree in finance, so he could have gone in as an officer as most, as everyone told him to do, but he, he wouldn't. I mean, he said, no, I'm going to, I want to enlist because I feel like that will give me the greatest opportunity for, or for better deployments to get in the action more, he felt like. So, and I don't know if that's always the case, Brian, but that's, mm-hmm. that's how Mark felt and, and he wanted to enlist. And so, um, he just started looking at all your typical, typical difficult jobs in, in all the branches of the military. And, and so we have a brother that was in the, that's in the Air Force. He's a doctor. And he was out in, um, at Lackland. And Mark went out to see him. And so Joseph took him on base. And I think Joseph had actually heard of some combat controllers or, or PJs. I think maybe it's PJs first, the, mm-hmm. the pararescuemen. And so he took him out there to meet some of them. Mark liked it, saw what they were doing. And um, he ended up meeting some combat controllers and that really just spoke to him. And that's what he, what he knew he wanted to do. One of his commanding officers wrote, you do not wander into an air force recruiter's office and suddenly find yourself out at Firebase Cobra. We're going to talk about that place. You have to want it. You have to work extremely hard to get there. Mark was a volunteer many times over and he excelled throughout two years of training in some of the toughest schools in the department of defense. Mark consciously sought the path he was on, and it was a truly a path less travel. How important are those words for you as his brother to, to have heard that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he had a mission. He recognized one of his missions on earth, and he accomplished it. But not only did he accomplish it, he, he worked his butt off. I mean, Mark, like when I, when I said earlier how he matured late, I mean, shoot, when Mark was – 23 years old, he still hadn't really filled out yet. He still had these narrow shoulders. He was tall and he, you know, he weighed 200 and I don't know, 20 pounds maybe, but he, he did not have much muscle on him. And so when he really started training, he transformed his body like a, like a metamorphosis yeah. and got himself ready. Mentally, he was already there. And I think he'd been there for, you know, a long time, but physically he had to get there and get ready. And so once he went into basic yeah, he was just as prepared, I think, as anybody, you know, could have been. I think so. You know, I'm, I'm holding the book, My Brother in Arms, The Exceptional Life of Mark Andrew Forrester, United States Air Force Combat Controller. And I have a hard time believing the dude on the cover of this book, you know, is that is that underdeveloped 16-year-old kid that many people thought was 
a 13 year old. Incredible. It looks incredibly strong and powerful. How does his time in the Air Force ultimately end up as a CCT? And then tell me a little bit about what you know about Firebase Cobra. Well, um, I think, you know, failing was an option for him. I'm sure he, he had parts of the, the different schools were difficult for him. And I don't know all the specifics, Brian, I wasn't there. And so, and I've never tried to make Mark out to be someone that he wasn't. So I, want to, I try to make that clear in the book too, right off the front is there's a lot of things that are said praising him, which I think are very well deserved. But these are things that people came to me and said, hey, I want to tell you about him. This is what he did. I wasn't like soliciting good info, good news, just so they, people were praising him. And so I really appreciated that, but um, he was in no way, you know, perfect or just the, the, the absolute best combat controller, but I think he did, he did excel. I mean, and I think he was, he, he, he had a, he had had surgery on his shoulder prior to going in. I know he was always worried about that. Hey, there's, it's going to get exposed somehow. It's something's going to happen. Um, he had had surgery on his eyes. The I guess the only sur- eye surgery that was available uh, that that was approved was PRK, and and um, I think he might have been. He was worried that something might happen there, and they 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 go bad. But um, I know he was strong in the water, and I know that he he was a leader. He was a, he was he ended up when, once he got in with his team, mm-hmm. he started. He was one of the lowest ranking guys, but. You know, I think he was respected and he was also a leader and the the rank didn't have anything to do with it. He was definitely road less traveled, right? Lowest ranking guys and, and arguably going to be older than some of those guys, given the trajectory of where he was in his life in that journey and when he enlisted. It's nine years after 9-11 on that fateful day. To the extent you want to talk about what happened to him when he made that ultimate price, I leave it to you. Okay, September 29th, 2010. Uh, so, Mark, this is his first deployment. He's about uh, five months into his deployment, four or five months. And to tell you about Cobra, what I know at the time, so it's, it's the name is uh, Firebase Tinsley, or I guess it was kind of in the process of being named that after, after a, a, a man who was killed there from there. Um, they... It was a very active area at the time. It was one of the one of the most coveted locations for combat controllers, because because you, they knew they were going to they were guaranteed to confront the enemy on a regular basis. So I think first of all, for for him to be sent to Cobra for on his first deployment was a big deal. Uh, there were probably some people that didn't agree with it and that felt like they should have gone because of you know seniority or whatever the case may be, but. Um, Mark's leadership selected him to go. And um, in fact, Mark told me when he told me he was going there, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know what that was, but he just said, hey, don't say anything about it. And I think now the reason why is because he knew that some people were not not real thrilled about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was able to prove himself quickly uh, because Mark, I think once you know, like when you, when you know your mission, Brian, when you know what you're supposed to do, it makes things easier. It's kind of like I've had, I've changed jobs before and I've moved before and I've moved before to someplace I didn't, I, beforehand, I would have never wanted to live. But when I knew the job was right and that's what God wanted me to do, then everything, it felt good. You know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have that feeling anymore. Hey, I don't want to go there. So when you're doing what you were born to do for those you're born to serve, that that's when you are at your optimal 
place, right? And he knew that's what he was doing in, in yeah. that moment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they were, you know, it's it's a remote um, location, I think in South, considered South, Southeastern Afghanistan, I believe, but in a Ruzgan province. And uh, this was day two of a large scale mission. Mark was, Mark and another combat controller or another, Mark was acting in the JTAC role. So some of your military guys will know what that is, but um, Mark was the JTAC and there was another JTAC there, George. And um, they had their own little little teams. And uh, Mark, this day too, he was with the dismounted element, excuse me. And, um, you know, I, I've got a lot of accounts and I, I just, I don't want to say anything really untrue, but I think the, the bottom line is we have the Silver Star Citation. That's, that's probably the best record to go off of. And one of Mark's teammates who, uh, Calvin Harrison, who was an SF, uh, the medic uh, with the ODA team and um, Calvin was shot, went down. Mark in his attempt to rescue Calvin was shot. Uh, so I think if you envision holding the gun up, firing, you know, moving forward, he was shot through the forearm into the chest. And, um, and so, and then, and then he was, he was killed pretty quickly. In that, in reading that citation and be able to dig through that, and I know it's not easy to have to do that, but, but to have that, to give you that piece of information that shows in that moment, while his teammate needed help, he was advancing forward to go do what he had to do to help him. Obviously, you can't take anything away, right? It can't make anything whole. But to have that, to have that citation, I know that's got to be important for you and your family. Yeah, you know, they um, when we went to Dover to, to, to meet his body there for, for the dignified um, arrival, or no, I'm sorry, that's the, the transfer, dignified transfer, mm-hmm. We met with mortuary affairs and you know, met with several people and they were, they had, they said, well, okay, here's his bronze star with Valor. He got this August the 6th. And we didn't know about that. Uh, that was a completely different mission. And then um, uh, there was no way to know about the silver star at that time, but we had kind of gotten word that, that pretty quickly that there was, I guess there's a chance that something else could be coming. And it took, it took a few years, but um, I think the main thing is, Mark died doing what he loved doing. Um, I think he died. Um, well, as, as Frank Latt, one of the, one of the F-18 pilots said, he died in his own version of a ball of flames in, on, in his own, a ground combat version of a ball of, in the ball of flames. And you've got that, you've got that. And when you hear that from other people, right, when those, those accounts, come to you from people that you've never met, you've never spoken to before reaching out to you to share that with you. I get the feeling that's what part of what spurred in you the want and desire to to write this book and to write it in the fashion in which you did. Before we talk about that, to have to experience that moment where they come to your house to tell you what happened, knowing that your parents were getting that news as well. We don't need to live in it and revisit it. But what was that? A, just a whirlwind uh, of of emotion and feeling. Yeah, yeah. the The notification is 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 really crazy. Um, you know, my 
In fact, my wife and I were actually about to get in a little argument over something. Who knows what? We we it was the beginning of a of a fight. <laughs> you could feel it coming on. Yeah, and um, and then the, uh, the car doors shut, and we heard those. I could tell they were heavy doors. It was like a like a Chevy Tahoe or a Suburban. So yeah, I mean, to open the door up, I see two guys there. They're combat controllers. So this is this is really cool, Brian. And I think that most people don't experience this and I've, I've taken this to the, I'm a member of the air force survivor advocacy council. Mm. And uh, I've, I've shared this with top leadership in the air force is one thing I really appreciated about Mark's squadron and about the special tactics squadron all, all, as a whole is they sent their own to notify us. So instead of sending some people from Maxwell air force base or Columbus that would have been the closest air forces or air force bases to us. They sit, I mean, they had this, they had to orchestrate planes to get people yeah. moving in motion quick to get them from North Carolina to our hometown of Haleyville where my parents are. And then to Tuscaloosa where I was. And so, um, you know, I open the door, I see the blues and I see the red berets and it took me just, you know, just a minute. I mean, uh, uh pretty just a second or two to realize something was up. And so, um, man, they were as, as good as anybody could be at delivering that news and then timing it to where my parents received the, the, the notification, you know, a few seconds or a few minutes before I did. Yeah. That's a really incredible part uh, in the book where you recount the, the care in the timing, and again, I don't want to lean into it too much, but but I want our listeners to really take time to to obviously, Thad, first of all, just to thank you and your family, right? All we can say in these moments are thank you and to tell us about your hero, which is what we're doing today, right? We're so grateful for that. But then also to think about, you know, the way our nation handles an event like this and the fact that, you know, they're orchestrating this incredible effort with skill and precision and love for that member of their community who's paid that ultimate price to ensure that your family in that moment gets the news in the most caring way possible. And part of that that you recount in the book is the fact that there were guys waiting outside your parents' house, I think, for hours to ensure that they could go see you in a different area and your parents at the same time so someone wouldn't have to make that call to the other house to tell them the news that they had just received. It's a really a powerful way uh, you tell that story in the book. Uh, and I know it likely wasn't easy to put all that down on paper, but it is pretty powerful. And, you know, you, you talk about it uh, and, and the way that we can speak specific to how the Air Force does it, because you've lived through it. And if you guys remember uh, our episode of Pick Up the Six, where we have Captain John Quartz on the show, who's a fighter pilot who flies the F-15, and his father, Major Teak Quartz, was uh, one of the first, if not the first, killed in combat during Operation Desert Storm. And my dad, as the flight commander, having known that family, was assigned to go deliver that news to them. But they do that because you can you can bring love and understanding and a personal relationship to that hero. I think that's a pretty important thing that, that our guys do. Mm -hmm. I, I think that really is pretty important. I'm sure you've thought about that maybe throughout the years. 
Yeah. I, in fact, I told the, I told the air force, um, man, I just forgot his name, but anyway, the, the, the top, top air force leadership of the Pentagon mm. that my opinion is that whenever we have a fallen, and this is just for the air force is we send our own to notify the family. So whoever that person has designated to be notified. And I think they all, you know, I'm sure they all think it's a good idea in, in theory, but logistically it's very difficult and they know that. So they're, they're not going to, they haven't agreed to that. I don't know. I don't, they probably never will because it's just too difficult now. News travels so fast, but the community Mark is in the special tactics community. It's, it's a little easier because it's smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but Man, I'm so thankful for it. I had a completely different experience than everyone else that is on that council that I'm on who had a loved one that's that was killed in active duty. Yeah. How soon did you know that you had to get this story down and that you had to write this book? Not that you wanted to, but that you had to. It was uh, within a few days. We had a lot of time in between the death and then the funeral, a lot of things that happened. So it was basically like eight days in between. And so it would have been a couple days later, we were talking and so I think some family friends were there. And um, one of our family friend, longtime friends had said they wanted to do something like a race. And so, and which we do, and we appreciate it. And the, the Tinker family is a, a, takes care of that for the most part. But then I just, when they said the race, it just hit me. It's like, I'm writing a book. And, you know, I don't care that I've never written a book. I don't care that I'm not skilled at writing or speaking. doesn't matter. I'm not trying to write a New York Times bestseller. This is not my, this is not the money my family's going to live on. It's just because Mark has, he's not married. He has no children. And how, you know, how quick our family, the children wouldn't know him. I mean, we've had multiple nieces and nephews, grandchildren born since Mark was killed. So I had to get it down to preserve his, his legacy is really what it was, what it boiled down to. The process to write a book is extremely arduous. Uh, and I've had uh, multiple friends who have taken it on to, to read the way. And by the way, so internally grateful that you sent us a copy of this and was able to read it and really get to know you get to know your brother before we sat down and had this conversation today, the process to write it, one, one of the many things that I really liked about the way you put together is you interweave what happened to him throughout his career, how he ultimately paid the price with getting to know him through these other moments in his life and bringing in outside stories of people getting to reflect on him as well. So talk me through that process. Yeah, I think early on, I knew that, look, Mark is not a household name. It's not like he has this this crazy story, at least that people know about up front. And so how do we capture people's attention in a sincere way? So, uh, by the way, Matthew Linko, who, who helped me tremendously with the book. I mean, this is this is something we talked about. And I wanted to I think this was me. Shoot, it could have been him. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, hey, let's let's mix it up where it doesn't go chronologically, but we can we can weave in early to late mid to late, anything like that in that way to try to, to get the reader more interested, especially since, since he's most people are not going to have never heard of Mark Forster when they buy the book or before they buy it. They sure know him by the time they're done reading it. That's well, for sure. I think, I think that's the, I think that's the best, the best, like most concise um, 
bit of information you can get right there. And, and that's, that's right. with a, a lot of research. On the back cover, it says, Mark saved my life and not just on the battlefield. That was George Earhart. Tell me about that. Well, George was the other JTAC. Uh, he was a TAC P. Uh, so he was acting in a JTAC role that was there with Mark when he was killed. And um, I think they just had a really good connection. They The shoot the night before, so the night of the 28th, they had the, so day one of the mission, they had stayed up late, you know, they'd taken care of their job and then stayed up late talking. I think they had a lot of talks about, hmm. about relationships and families. And George was either married at the time or, or recently divorced or going through a divorce. And, um, but I think George had had some struggles and, and maybe even some um, things because of his, his, that marriage at that time, and um, Mark, Mark really helped him. In fact, I've, I've interviewed George once or twice on my podcast and we've talked about that. And he's, he's, he's not, a, he's not afraid to talk about the, the depression and the, the things that he, he went through and Mark was able to be there for him for, for part of that, you know, and, and, and would have been there much more, but George was, was, was hurt the day Mark was killed, but he had, he had to keep going. Uh, he had a con- he had a concussion, and I don't remember what else happened to him that day, but he had some pretty serious injuries. It's incredible. Uh, there really is a lot in that, not just on the battlefield. It, it speaks to the relationship that they had formed, right? And and how your brother, um, through the physical act, right, saved him. But man, probably through those conversations, just as important. Yeah, just as oh, important, yeah. right, for his mental. Mm-hmm his mental ability. Uh, I want to talk about the Mark Forrester foundation uh, and the great work you guys are doing, but you also describe your brother and we've talked about this a little bit here already, but I want to dig in on this. You describe him as a warrior for God and country in that order. Why important? Well, first of all, I think when you're serving others, you're serving God. And that's what Mark did. You look at it as a missionary, you look at it as, and not only in, in the military, but also and Mark did a lot of service work, like um, cleanup from from hurricanes and tornadoes. I mean, we did some of that together, and some of it he did, you know, without me. Where you go down to Florida or South Alabama, and you help clean up, you cut cut trees, you move limbs, you climb trees. I mean, um, he helped me, and he would come to see me sometimes in training, and, and I would have somebody from church need some help, and he'd go help me and, um, do some service work, and so. That speaks a lot, especially when he's been just beat to death during the week in training. And then he says, okay, it's August. It's August and I'll go in 90 degree heat and um, cut up some trees. And uh, I mean, I I would not have wanted to do that. And so I greatly appreciated that. So it's just a life of service. Um, But also I think Mark, uh, I mean, Brian, look, look, Mark had high standards, but what's most important is he, he lived them. I mean, people you know they laughed at me, made fun of him because of his language or his lack of color. Well, I guess he had colorful language, but maybe not the same colorful that you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, he didn't drink. Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't, I guess, use it, use any form of drugs. And, um, and, you know, one was, was saving himself for marriage. And so he just had these standards, but I think what's most important is whatever your standards are, just, just live them. Yeah, and even though, yeah. and he was in a, you know, think about being in a in a stressful situation, and and um, where he was uh, downrange, and you know, the, the the best I 
I can tell and what everyone's told me is he was consistent in his beliefs. And so that's what I, I really appreciate is, is the consistency. There's something important in there about just being steadfast. And in fact, I'm going to read again from the back cover here. Cause as you said it, I just thought about it. And his friend, Michael said he was compassionate and mild, but utterly unrelenting in defending his principles. There's something very important about that. That's how legacy that, right. You know, this just by, knowing your brother and by sharing the story, that's how legacy is built. Those are the things that will always be remembered. Those are the things where people say, well, introduce me to your family. You say, well, I have an older sister and I have four brothers and I'm one of four boys. And he's always going to be a part of that conversation, right? That's what, that's what legacy is all about. That's, that's how he, that's how he made that happen. All right. Tell me about the Mark Forrester Foundation. I'm able to see you on video here. We've got an audio podcast. I see this b- black bracelet around your wrist that I can only assume and imagine is a constant daily reminder about your hero, your little brother. So tell us about the foundation work you're doing. Yeah. So it started um, officially in like December of 2010. So a few months after his death and um the, the purpose of the foundation is to provide scholarships for Haleville High School students, which is the high school we all went to in our hometown. And um, we, we provide scholar, as many scholarships as, well, people that meet the criteria. So sometimes we've done six, I believe, one year. Um, sometimes it's one, depends how many apply, how many are qualified, and then how much money we have. So that's the priority are the scholarships. And then, um, and by the way, we started out and said, anybody that, if anyone who gets the scholarship chooses to go to the university of Alabama, they'll get an extra $500. Roll tide. Um, but you know, we've actually never done that. And I'm pretty sure no one that has, has gotten the scholarship has gone to Alabama. So, so that funny, but so mm-hmm. we're not going to do that anymore. Um, but we, we do donate to a lot of other worthy causes that are almost always, um, military or first responder connected. So when we have the money, we definitely help out with a lot of other organizations where it's, we're just a little family run, yeah. run business. And, you know, I had somebody, one time somebody got really mad at me at the, our annual walk um, because I guess I was like, Hey, I didn't, I didn't get your um, registrations for the, the gun raffle that we had. And they were like really, really ticked. And this is, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning, we're getting ready to walk 28 miles. And I said, look, we're all just a bunch of volunteers. I'm I'm getting all these emails and having to to, to forward them on and take care of it. So sorry, I don't have it. And we look, we fixed it. She I got I got Lauren Tinker to take care of it. But we're just doing the best we can. We don't we don't have we don't make any money. Uh, That's not the purpose of it. But we we wanted to to remember Mark's legacy and to, to teach people about the price of freedom. Where can folks go to find out more about the foundation and to pick up a copy of my brother in arms? You can go to markaforester.com or jag28.com. Um, the book is on there. The books on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble books, a million, you know, wherever it's in, it's in um, hardcover paperback um, audio. It's on audio. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, audible now so you know any way you want it you can get it and um who narrates the book um it's actually uh someone we we hired here uh he actually is in huntsville and he went to alabama it didn't that wasn't what we were looking for but it just kind of worked out that way so scott scott dufrain did a great job with a book and uh i read the preface Mm -hmm. and um but then 
no one wants to hear my voice after that. So we got someone else with a better voice. I want to hear about the podcast too. You mentioned a podcast. So what are you doing out there with that? Um, Patriot to the core is the name of it. It's very similar to yours, Brian. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got a good thing going. I started this in 2016 because of all the great people that I feel like I've, I know uh, that started through Mark. I mean, his teammates and, and there's so many good people. And I talk about this in the book. I think Brian is, well, I know I do some is, all the good things that people did for us and, and still do. Um, I just, I just wanted to highlight some of that. And so some of, a lot of it is military based, but not all my guests, mm-hmm. but it's all people who serve their, their country, um, other people. And uh, I think I've got like, well, there's like 81 episodes now. Awesome. Um, you're on pace to, pe- to pass that real quickly, but I do <laughs> yeah, it. We're now. turning to burn over here, but it's all good. You this- are. Hey, listen, a podcast about service and people have done incredible things for our country. That sounds like a hell of an idea, man. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love the great work. Well, I enjoy Absolutely. it. No doubt. No doubt. The book is uh, My Brother in Arms. I'm holding a hard copy of it right now. Guys, go get this. Uh, it's an easy read. That does a wonderful job of interweaving his brother's service and getting to know their family. You get uh, a great sense as to who this hero was. He's got his red Alabama hat on here uh, in his CCT uniform. I mean, dude looks like he's ready to go out and put the work in. Uh, But you get to know who this man is and you get a real deep sense about not only to his commitment to his country and his family, but to the higher power that was his ultimate why in life, right? Serve a good God. And I think this book illustrates how he lived that out and how your family continues to live that out by honoring his legacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's most important, Brian, is I don't want people to to think, oh, this is another brother mourning, mourning his brother or another person mourning and talking about how great their, their fallen hero is. I mean, this is, is this is his story. Um, he, he, Hey, when you talked earlier about him being unrelentless and, or I'm sorry, relentless. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, but sometimes that offended people, you know, sometimes he wasn't the most, um, sensitive or understanding. Uh, he was opinionated, but, um, but he was, he had conviction and he was committed and, um, he, he put others before self and he used the skills that God had given him to get better and to help, help eliminate a lot of terrorists from the earth. Yep. Absolutely. It's the Mark Forrester foundation. The podcast is called Patriot to the core. So guys go Check that one out as well. Sounds like you got some amazing stories over there. I'm excited to add that to the queue and start digging through as well. The book is My Brother in Arms, The Exceptional Life of Mark Andrew Forrester, United States Air Force Combat Controller. Thad, thanks so much for sharing your story and his story with our listeners today. It's been awesome, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you for what you're doing. Y'all, I think you really are just getting started. The momentum, the ball is rolling. Getting faster and faster. Absolutely, brother. He's Thad Forrester. His brother is Mark Andrew Forrester. I'm Brian Jodas, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.